1 John 2, 29. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world did not, does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Heavenly Father, these are weighty words. Lord, these are heavy truths. God, as we stand under the word of God, it's tempting to wonder whether or not anyone can be saved. To think that anyone who practices sin is not of you, Lord. Isn't that all of us? And yet you call us children. Children of the Most High. And so God, I pray today, Lord, that we would be given your Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment, Lord, to to be honest about the things that are in our lives that are not of you. But not so that we can be shamed by them, but so you can take them away. God, we give you our time. We give you this place. We give you our gathering, Lord. We give you our hearts, our souls, our minds, our strength. God, we ask that you would gently speak, that you would teach, Lord, but that we would experience your presence and your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget the time when I was a teenager. I remember exactly the moment in uh, the kitchen and the phone rang. It was middle of the afternoon on, on, on a weekend. And I picked up the phone and I said, hello. And the person on the other line assumed that I was my father <clears throat> and began to speak to me as though he were talking to my dad, just jumping right into the conversation. I had to say, oh, no, 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 no. I'm sorry. This is, this is Adam, his son. I'll go get him for you. And I went and got him. And I remember walking away from that so proud that someone had mistaken my voice for my dad's voice. It meant that as a teenager that I was becoming a man and not just growing up and becoming a man, but the man that I was becoming was a man like my father. And there was like this pride that came with that. 
Years later, I became a father of my own children. And there was a day when I was standing outside of our church and I was talking to somebody and standing like I normally do, hands on the hips. I've always, like, like if you're ever talking to me, I'm either here or here, just striking that like superhero pose. <laughs> you know, just, I mean, just standing there casually, you know. And, uh, and my, son, my son walked up to me as I was talking to someone and he, and he looked at me. And he put his hands on his hips, looked down at my feet, and he turned a foot out, and he just stood there while I was talking to someone. I looked over, and I saw him standing like that, and seeing him just position his body to posture himself, modeling it after me. And I remembered how much, how proud I was to be like my dad, and it was something so small, but in that moment, I realized how much they were trying to be like theirs and how much they were, how closely they were watching me and, and imitating me and emulating what they saw in me. And I was terrified. <laughs> Imitate this, not that, you know, but they're trying to be like their dad. In some way, all of us bear a family resemblance. We look like those we belong to, whether it's, it's physical features or shared traits, or maybe it's not physical. Maybe it's more in line with our, our values and our morals or our, our hobbies and interests. But we bear a resemblance with those, with the group that we belong to, with our families. And some of these resemblances, they come naturally, right? They're, they're, they're ingrained into our DNA. It's like software that's been uploaded to us. And we can't help but reflect these things, whether it's hair color or eye color, or the shape of the face or whatever it is, it just comes naturally. You cannot help but look like your family, but sometimes these resemblances, they, they take work to emulate. Imagine what it takes to go into the family business, whatever that may be. Right? Generations ago, if your father was, say, a, a blacksmith, chances are his father was a blacksmith before him, and his father before him was a blacksmith, and lo and behold, you are destined to be a blacksmith. But... That is not going to come naturally. You are going to have to apprentice. You are going to have to put in the work. You are going to have to learn the trade in order to align with your family identity, your family business, your family's way of life. See, this is the main point of our text today. The Apostle John is speaking concerning a spiritual family. He's talking to us about our eternal heritage. He talks about what it means to be children of God, what it means to become members of this new family, and what it looks like to live as members of this new family. See, membership in God's family plays out not just in, in name only, but it plays itself out in attitudes and behaviors. Those of you who are, are married maybe know what it's like to be married into a new family. Our lives will either take shape within that family 
or else we'll be at odds with this family that we have married into. And in the same way, John says that we have become members of God's family. And so our lives must take shape according to God's family. And if we do not reflect the values of God's family, then at best we will be at odds with one another. But what's worse Perhaps we're not actually part of the family as we thought we were. And so throughout our text, John bounces back and forth between these two possible family identities and how we resemble the family to which we belong. And so this is where we need to begin today with God and his family. In Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then in Christ, you are a child of God. In Christ, you are a child of God. In Christ, you belong to God's family. In Christ, you have God as father. You have one another as brother and sister. In Christ, you belong to the household of God and you are known by his name. And this is not mere sentiment. This is not platitude. This is not just things that we say to make us feel better. This is not something that we invented so that we could explain the Christian community. If you have put your faith in Jesus, John says that you are born of God, that you are reborn. You are rebirthed into a new family, that you are reborn into the family of God. And while joining a new earthly family may have certain implications like where you spend the holidays, right? You get married and that's going to come into question. What are you going to do on the holidays? The primary implication in John's mind for our family identity is just that. It's, it's, It's identity. The primary factor in John's mind is how our Belonging to the family of God impacts who you are, impacts your identity. In Christ, you have a new spiritual identity. You are no longer who you were. You have become something new. See, identity is how we're known, right? It's what people think of when they, when they look at us or when they think about us. Oh, I know so-and-so. She is blank. I know him. He's that guy who blank. It's the thing that comes to our mind. It's what we're known by, our reputation or like that, that identifying factor. It's how we are known. Many people today work their entire lives to build an identity for themselves. They kill themselves trying to become something, something that they'll be proud of, something that they can uh, uh, share with others, something that will make them feel important, significant, worthy, Like like they live a meaningful life. They work forever trying to build an identity for themselves. But in the ancient world, your identity was primarily rooted in the family or the clan that you came from. It was rooted specifically in who your father was. That's why when people introduced themselves, they said, I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so, son of so-and-so. As, as, as prestigious as your family was, the more names you would want to put in that list to show how connected you were to people with significance, people of 
importance. It's like being known by a prestigious name. Names like Rockefeller or Kennedy in the United States or names like Windsor in the UK or Manning in the NFL. Right? These names of significance, they carry with it honor and prestige in their particular spheres of influence. But through faith, anyone who believes, any single one of you in this room, through faith, you can be known by the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. You can introduce yourself as I am Adam, son of the living God. There is no greater identity. There is no greater family. There is no better father you could ever descend from or associate with. Through faith, you are given a spiritual identity. And that spiritual identity is a child of God. And that is incredible. That's remarkable. And if you are a child of God... John says you will live like a child of God. He says you can't help it. The Spirit of God transforms you. The seed of God, the Holy Spirit, is in you and will empower you and transform you to live a life that looks like it belongs in God's family. See, this new spiritual identity plays out in moral integrity. This, this identity that we have as children of God is seen in our integrity, in the way that we live. Like I said earlier, becoming a member of a, a new family comes with new responsibilities. And in this one, that responsibility is that we live, we behave like the family of God. We belong to the family of God, and therefore we behave like the family of God. Every family has a code of conduct. The family that you grew up in has a code of conduct. Some families have family rules that they actually write down and occasionally recite with one another, reminding one another of the family rules. Some families have a code of conduct that is unspoken. But there are things that the family does because that's what the family does. And there are things that the family does not do because that's not who we are. We don't do that. We don't participate in that. I remember going to a friend's house when I was in high school and uh, he and his dad, they weren't even mad at each other or anything, but they were just cussing at each other. Just the language that they used when they, when they talked to each other. And I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but if I ever went home and used those words, it was going to be bad news bears. Like it, was, it would not have been good. In their family, language apparently wasn't significant. In my family, you better watch your mouth when you're talking to me. <laughs> it was very, we, we had this it would not have been okay, right? Different codes of conduct. There are less obvious examples, maybe. Think about the kinds of movies that you watch as a family. You know, nothing other than PG or, you know, some families, they watch different movies or the kinds of books that you read. Do you read Harry Potter or is Harry Potter automatically making your child the devil himself? Families have different codes of conduct. They have different things, sensitivities that concern them, and, and it's okay. It's good. Families have codes of conduct. How about this one? What is the appropriate amount of time 
to pass between finishing dinner and doing the dishes? Where are my, I do the dishes as soon as dinner is done, people? And you are so proud of that. Where are my, the morning's all right, people, right? There you go. And, and just pride, right? Like, I don't need, I, I don't need to be perfect. I'm holy. Um, what about, what about, I'll wash the dish when I need the dish, people. <laughs> Sorry, Katie. See, membership in a new family comes with a new code of conduct. And in God's family, that code of conduct is very simple. Perfection. It's very, it's, it's, it's very simple. Purity and righteousness. Because God is pure and righteous, we are called to live in purity and righteousness. Listen to John. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Everyone who practices righteousness, everyone who, the, the literal word there is not practice, it's just does. Throughout this passage in the ESV translation, you're going to read practice, 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 practice. The word is actually does. Anyone who does righteousness has been born of him. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. This is the way God's family lives. Purity and righteousness. We all good? Okay, moving on. No, like, let's sit in that for a second. Let's listen to that for a second. Let's not try to explain that away too quickly. Right, we're, we're always going to land and, and, and rest in grace here. We're always going to land in grace. So let's allow the fact that we know that grace in the gospel is coming. We're going to land there. Let's allow that to bring peace to our souls as we sit in that heavy truth. The code of conduct in God's family is absolute righteousness. It's heavy. It's a big deal. If you put your faith and hope in Jesus, you will purify yourself as he is pure. This means that all of the sin and all of the junk in our lives that does not fit in the character of God must go. Now, this isn't just an obedience thing. This isn't just a rule in the Bible that is uh, disconnected from the character of God himself. It's not just something that God likes. I'm going to be the kind of God that demands righteousness just because I feel like it. This isn't, this isn't an obedience thing. It's an identity thing. It's connected with God's identity. And so as a child of God, you are a reflection of your father in heaven. You are a reflection of him. You were made in his image. He, he sent his son to die for you, to give you his Holy Spirit, to unite you to himself. And anyone who knows that you are a Christian looks at you and doesn't just judge you, doesn't just have an experience with you, but through you has an experience either with your heavenly father or, or has thoughts about your heavenly father based on the way you live and based on the way they interact with you. And so to live in sin as a reflection of God 
is misrepresenting God. See, oftentimes we think about sin and we think of it in terms of that thing that God doesn't like or that thing that makes God sad or that thing that hurts God's heart. But in this passage, what John is getting at is is sin is that thing that slanders God. It tells the world that God is something different than he is. We're saying we're made in God's image. We bear God's image. We bear his name. We're united to Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And then when we go and do something that God wouldn't do, that's what we're telling the world that God is like. And so sin is slandering God. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah when he talks about the result of God's people living in ways contrary to God's character. He says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The name of God is dishonored among the people who do not know God because of the way you live apart from God is what Paul's saying here. And so when people see hypocrisy in the church, they don't just write off the individual believer. So when people see hypocrisy in the church, they don't just see that person and go, oh, that person's a, a, a bad person or that person, you know, did this like terrible thing and, uh, and they're a Christian um, and I'm just going to like judge them and write them off. no. You know better than this. You know one of the primary reasons people in America do not want to come to church, do not want to know God, do not want to hear about Jesus is because they know people in their lives that they would call hypocrites. They don't just write you off. They write off God. They don't just write off the believer who happened to to live in hypocrisy or whatever. They write off God himself. They're done with him. They don't want anything to do with him because they see the way God's people sometimes live. This is what Paul is talking about. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the way they live. And so this identity as children of God that we receive through faith is supposed to transform us from the inside out. It's supposed to give us new hearts and new desires for purity and righteousness. And these are to be observable in a person's life. Our spiritual identity is seen through our moral integrity. That's how we are known. And so John says, the reason the world does not know you is because it did not know God, right? So the reason the world doesn't understand your identity is because it doesn't understand God's identity, right? And so the world is going to look at you and they're not going to understand what the big deal is. Why are you so enamored with this God? It's like, it's like, you ever know families who have never given their children chocolate? I don't mean this to shame anyone here if that's you, if you're like, I've never given my children chocolate. But I know people who don't live in Carpinteria who have never given their kids chocolate and their kids show up to birthday parties and see like the cooks, the cookies and the cakes and the candies and, and just children foaming at the mouth. And they're like, what's the big deal? 
They don't know the beauty of what they're missing out on. See, the world looks at you and they look at our worship gathering and they go, what in the world? Why would you spend a Sunday morning? It's going to be like 75 degrees today. It's beautiful. You live on the beach. What in the world are you doing here? Just singing to Jesus, giving up time of your day. They don't get you. They don't understand you. They don't understand why you would do this because they haven't seen, they haven't tasted and seen that the Lord is good. The reason they don't understand your identity as a child of God is because they don't know God. They don't understand what the big deal is. And so we know having an experience with God, having an experience with this Holy Spirit, if you've trusted in Jesus, you've received the Holy Spirit, we know that 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 desire to please our Heavenly Father, that desire to be like our Heavenly Father, and isn't this good news that He gives us His Spirit to work this out in us? If you have become a member of God's family, You are given power to live like a member of God's family. But then what do we do with those who claim to be Christians? They claim the identity, but are uninterested in the integrity. They claim the identity of child of God, but are uninterested in the identity. John tells us, whoever makes a practice of sin. Remember what I said about that word practice? Whoever does sin is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. By this it is evident who are children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness, whoever does not do righteousness, is not of God. The logic is valid. If you are a child of God, then you will practice righteousness. If you do not practice righteousness, therefore you are not a child of God. That's that's heavy. John is saying that apart from Christ, you're not a child of God. In Christ, you are a child of God. Apart from Christ, you are not a child of God. See, don't be mistaken. The Bible does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. It's a very popular uh, teaching in New Age spirituality that we are all God's children. Some will even point to the Bible. They'll point to what the Apostle Paul says in, in Athens when he says that we are all God's children, but Paul is speaking anthropologically. He is saying that as human beings, we descend from the Creator. We receive our existence and our life from the Creator. But Jesus tells the Pharisees that they are sons of their father, the devil. And John the Baptist calls them a brood of vipers, children of snakes. Jesus specifically says, do not say to yourself that your father is Abraham. You are children of your father, the devil, because you hate me and are trying to kill me. See, only those who practice righteousness, John says, can say that they are born of him. Only those who seek to purify themselves of the distortions of sin can say that they belong to Jesus. Those who live in sin, those who live in lawlessness, John calls children of the devil. Their identity is wrapped up in his name and in his legacy. These are are harsh words. There is no gray in John's world. You either are or you aren't. It's either light or dark. It's truth or lie. It's children of God or children of the devil. It is black and white in John's world. 
the language of this is so strong. Literally translate that, that, that word practice. No one born of God does sin. Indeed, he cannot do sin because he has been born of God. Every single one of us need to say, then who then is saved? Who, who then is saved? Are we all lost cause? Are we, all, we all do sin. We all have that in our lives. We all do things that we mistake. The Apostle Paul says, that which I want to do, I can't do. And the very thing I don't want to do, that's the thing I keep doing. And he was Paul. We all have this in our lives and we read this and all of us should say, who then can be saved? Who then does this apply to? Who can be a child of God? Can anyone actually belong to him? Which of us is without sin? You know, honestly, like after the things we've been talking about through this this book of 1 John, we have to, can John really be saying this? What about what John said in chapter 2? I write to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. John acknowledges that the believer, the child of God, will still experience sin. Did he just change his mind after a few paragraphs? We we, we We have to be serious about this. We can't just skip past what he says there. We need to like experience the weight of this. Remember, grace is coming. Let's allow that assurance of grace to let us be a little bit uncomfortable just for a little while. Is sin in your life really proof that you do not belong to God? Maybe. But it's not because of the sin. It's not because of the individual sin. You did this, therefore you're not of God. Rather, it's because of your, potentially, your attitude about that sin. See, the key is to understand this word lawlessness that John uses and how it relates to sin. To sin, in short, is to break God's law, right? God has a moral law. That reflects his nature and character. And so to sin breaks God's law. That's that's what sin is. But to be lawless is to cast off God's law and to cast off his authority to hold you morally accountable. So to sin is to break the law. To be lawless is to be like, what law? God, I don't care what you say. I don't need to, I don't need to live by your rules. I don't, need to, I don't need to listen to that. I don't need to abide by that. Don't, don't put your, your, your legalism on me, Jesus. Thinking of Jesus as legalistic is funny. Don't put that on me. I, I, you know, it's to cast off God's authority to hold you morally accountable. And so a Christian, when confronted with their sin, experiences conviction. This is what the Apostle Paul calls godly grief. We're confronted with something that we have done that is outside of God's nature and character, and we're grieved by it. That's not lawless. That's someone who values God's moral authority and loves God's moral authority and is grieved by the fact that they've done something outside of his nature and character. 
It's not just guilt because we got found out. It's actually pain that comes from knowing we have hurt the heart of the God who loves us. So to be lawless means that you do not submit to God's moral standards. And so there's no remorse when you hurt him because you don't know his love. So even if someone claims to be a Christian, if they refuse to submit to God's moral authority, that confession of faith is undermined by the way that they live. And so John says there is actually no assurance for the person who has no regard for righteousness. Doesn't matter about how you've intellectually affirmed that Jesus existed and did all of these things. Unless you have relinquished your life to him and given him complete authority to call you to the good and to keep you from the evil and to live not under the law of Moses, but the law of Christ, the law of grace, and to abide by God's nature and character because you have been forgiven, there is actually no assurance that you actually believe. That's what John's saying. But this doesn't mean, on the contrary, that all Christians are sinless. That would be another error. One would be an error to say, if you sin, you're not a believer. That's wrong. The other error is to say, if you're a Christian, you will not sin. You'll never sin. You are perfect. You are morally righteous and perfect. That's, that's the other error. We always, we still fall short. We still sin. But not all sin is a result of lawlessness. So how can you tell? How can you know the difference in your life, whether the sin in your life, which is there, it's all there, how do we know if that sin falls under the category of sins committed by a Christian or sin that's evidence that we're not Christian? Well, the question that we need to ask is, what do we do with it? What do we do with our sin? Are we unfazed by it? Just unconcerned? for what it is. That's a scary place to be. If you think that grace gives you permission to sin, you're wrong. We don't, we don't sin that grace may abound. We don't, we don't live by grace. God has forgiven me of my sins, so I can do whatever I want. Hashtag Christian freedom. That's not what that means. doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want. Yes, your sins are forgiven. Because Christ died on the cross for your sins, don't rub his nose in it. Don't celebrate it in front of Jesus on the cross. No, that's not what it means. You can't just do whatever you want. If you think that you have the right to define what is right and wrong, you're wrong. It doesn't matter what the culture allows. It doesn't matter what the culture celebrates. We are increasingly living in a world that, that has made it unacceptable to have the moral standard that God requires of his family. The, the, the church was always known by their high moral ethic from the very beginning to, the very, to, to, to now. We need to be known for this high moral ethic ethic and the world increasingly has turned against the, the faith in Christ and said this moral standard that you have is actually wrong. It's not just unnecessary, it's wrong. They're actually they're actually trying to make it immoral to be moral. They're calling bad good and good bad. Doesn't matter what society allows or what is legal. 
or even what is celebrated. God's standards are his own. It's rooted in his nature and in his character, and he asks his family to abide by what he believes is right. So if we are living our life in grace, and so thinking we can just do whatever we want, we can't. That's an abuse of grace. That's an abuse of what Christ has done. So what do you do with your sin? Are you unfazed by it, or do you acknowledge your sin? Do you acknowledge that it is sin? Do you confess it before God? Do you share it with people around you and invite them to hold you accountable? Say, I've discovered something about myself that ought not be there. God, take this away from me. Brother, sister in Christ, hold me accountable to this. Do you see any other error in my ways? Let me know because I want to root it out. I want to be pure as he is pure. This is evidence that God's seed abides in you, that the Holy Spirit is in you and convicting you and transforming you. And so sin that is confessed, sin that is repented of is not lawlessness. Sin that is confessed and repented of is forgiven and cleansed by the blood of Jesus. This is why John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so if you are here and you are a Christian, it does not mean that you will not sin. It just means that when you do, you will eventually repent means that, that the Holy Spirit in you will convict you and convince you that you need to turn from that sin, to turn away from unrighteousness and turn toward righteousness. And so if you hear and you want forgiveness of your sins, but you do not care to live apart from your sin, then you don't actually want God. You can say that you want God all you want. You want to you know God, you want to become closer with God. But if, you, if your desire for God doesn't include a desire to turn away from your sin, you don't actually want God. You're actually living actively, trying to live apart from him. And so God's children delight to reflect their father. And so if we don't have any desire to purify ourselves as he is pure, no desire to live righteously as he is righteous, we don't have assurance of this identity as children of God. Now, some of you may hear this and think, okay, I think I got it. In order to belong to God's family, I need to behave like God's family. Okay, so if I start doing all the right things, then I'll be a child of God. And that would be wrong. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that if you want to be a child of God, you need to clean up your life, and, and, and behave. That's not what I'm saying. God's not waiting for you to get your act together before he chooses you for his team. What this does mean, unlike what many religions will teach, including religions that claim to be uh, following Jesus, many religions will teach that you have to, you got to get your act together. You got to work your way up to God in order to belong. But the Bible teaches that the reason we behave, the reason we live in holiness is because we belong. The reason we behave is because we belong. The reason we live in holiness is because we have been made holy. Because we have experienced grace, therefore we live in light of that grace and we live a transformed life. So we can discern whether or not we are in Christ based on the way we live. 
We can look at that and go, okay, what does this say about me? But it doesn't work the other way around. To become a child of God, we don't go through all the steps of law. I have to do all of these things to become a child of God. And yet, if we become a child of God, we will live in light of these things. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? It's grace before law, grace before rule, gospel before obedience. You cannot turn it around. You can't earn it. It's given to you by grace, but it demands a response. It demands a response. And this is good news because it means whatever your relationship with God was before you walked in here today, and whatever your relationship with sin was or is, we are all invited to become children of God today. No matter where you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, you are invited today to become a child of God. See, the beauty and power of this adoption into God's family is rooted in God's love. John says, see what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Reality Carpenteria, see what love the Father has given to you, that you where you sit should be called child of God. And so you are through faith. Through faith because of what Christ has done. Right now, I don't, I don't care what you did this morning. I don't care what you did this week, this weekend, this month. Where you sit because of what Christ has done. Because of the love of the Father, you are called right now a child of God. Because the Father loves you. Membership in God's family begins with God's love for us. This is the foundation. Apart from it, there is no hope. All the attributes of God's deity, his, his, his uh, all-knowing, all-powerful holiness, it's all irrelevant to us if he doesn't love us. And want us to be in communion with him. He loves us. But he's also holy. And he hates sin. And so he must do something about your sin before you can experience the intimacy of a child with their father. And so because of his love for us, verse 5 says that he sent his son Jesus to take away sin. This is the power this is the beauty. How is it that someone who is lawless does not uh, get that title child of God, but the one who has sin but confesses and repents his sin because of Jesus is called a child of God? Because through faith, Jesus takes away sin. He takes it away. This is different than forgiveness. Forgiveness is, oh, see that sin right there? I'm not going to hold it against you. This is cleansing. It's, I don't see the sin anymore. I don't see the stain anymore. I don't see the soil in the garments anymore. The, 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 the grass stains in the knees, the blood stains from your filth that you're living in. I don't see it anymore. Jesus has taken it away. It's not just there it is. It's okay. No, it's gone. Poof. As far as the east is from the west. Why are we children of God? Because God has sent his son to take your sin away by nailing it to the cross. So don't hold on to it. Don't, don't keep living in it. Give it to Jesus. Let him take it away. 
By faith, if you receive the grace of God in Jesus, your sin is taken away, eliminated. Because sin is participating in the work of the devil. And what does verse 8 say? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The sin in our life, the temptation, the shame, the condemnation that the enemy wants to heap upon you, all of it, all of it, Jesus came to get rid of it, to destroy it, to put it in the grave, to rise from the dead above it, and to invite you into a life apart from it. You don't need to live in the sin. You don't need to live in the works of the devil. You don't need to live a life that perpetuates the works of the devil because Jesus has come to take away sin and to destroy the works of the devil. Though we sin through faith, we are saved from the penalty of our sin and invited into the family of God because Jesus, the only, the one and only Son of God, took the penalty for our sin that he didn't deserve. That is why you can be known by the title child of God that you don't deserve. Because Jesus has taken your place. Jesus has taken your sin. Jesus has destroyed the works of the devil. And all that is left is his righteous works that he has done on behalf of you, that you have been united to by the power of the Holy Spirit, so that when God looks at you, he sees Christ. He sees his son. You are a child of God because of what Jesus has done. This is the invitation today. This is the invitation today. Not to intellectually ascend to some truth, some philosophical proposition. The invitation to you today is to become a child of God. To be assured that you are a child of God. To be confident that you are a child of God. And to know that you have been given power by the Holy Spirit to live as a child of God. This is who you are right now. Now, right now. And so today, this is the good news. Not only the invitation to become a child, but the power to live like a child of God. The reason we don't always reflect this identity in the way that we live is because we're still trying to apply the good news of Jesus to every aspect of our life. The the good news of Jesus means that you're loved, but if you continue to live your life in search for love apart from God the Father's love, you're going to end up in hot water. Trying to prove to yourself that you're loved by seeking love from all other people, your friends, your your family, your parents, uh, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your husband, your wife, whoever it might be. If if you are trying to earn the love of other people, if your your identity is in the fact that that person loves you, it's going to lead to some unrighteousness. So we need to know that we have all the love that we need in the love of God the Father. If we're looking for identity in other things, looking to build an identity for ourselves with our career, our family, even our righteousness, wanting to be known as a good person or our finances or our fame, like whatever it is, whatever we're, we're trying to build an identity for ourselves, the, the, the fact that we, can only, we only have to work three months out of the year and we travel the world and do all these amazing things. That's our identity. I get to live this lifestyle, whatever that Whatever that is, if we, if we are looking to other things to build an identity for ourselves outside of the identity that God gives us as a child of God, we're going to get ourselves into trouble. 
If we look for meaning and purpose and pleasure in other things, in the things of the world, rather than finding our utmost joy and delight in Jesus Christ, we're going to get into trouble. But thank God we have the Holy Spirit that when we do, he just goes, hey, you don't need this. You don't need this. You're a child of God. You're loved. You're saved. You're empowered to transform. Let me, let me make you holy. And so today, the love of the Father calls you His child. The work of the Son takes your sin away so that you can be welcomed into the family of God. And the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit regenerates us from the inside out and empowers us to live in light of it all. As we wait for the day when Christ returns, when we will see Him face to face, we will be transformed to look like Him, not just in physical appearance, but we will be righteous as he is righteous. We will be pure as he is pure because we will see him as he is. And if you have known his righteousness, then you long for this day. You long for this day because you know how grieved you are over the things in your life that don't look like him. And soon and very soon, you won't look like those things anymore. You can be confident in this, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. When Christ returns, you will be perfect. Praise God. Lord, we long for that day. Lord, we long for that day when we can stand before you Sin completely taken away, abolished, eliminated, not just from our lives and our relationships, from, from, but from the world. Lord, we love you. We long for that day. And thank you for the assurance that right now where we sit, our sins are not held against us. We are called children of God. And so we are. God, I pray that the joy of that identity, the joy of, of that grace would motivate us to live lives that put your beauty and your value and your holiness on full display so that when people look at us, they don't, uh, we don't slander God, but we show them just how beautiful and valuable, wonderful Jesus is. God, we worship you. Stir our hearts up with gratitude and joy. And may we praise you as you deserve today. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.